Entering the Freedom Hut. Nancy Pelosi's living in an alternate universe. Mitt Romney's righteous turncoat vote. Take your time, Iowa. No rush. Nobody's pushing for the results. And what is the reason for the ugliest buildings in the world getting built? And can we stop it? That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Had the State of the Union as required by the Constitution of the United States. Uh, the president is to submit in writing or in person his uh, statement of the State of the Union. Uh, what happened instead was the president using the Congress of the United States as a backdrop for a reality show, presenting a state of mind that had no contact with reality whatsoever. If there's somebody that has no contact with reality, it's pretty clear it's Nancy Pelosi. If you watch her press conference today, who's rambling and, you know, the, the president and the impeachment and the, con- you know, really a bunch of blather. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Buck Sexton show. <laughs> I was so excited to talk to you. In case you didn't know what show you were listening to, this is, in fact, the Buck Sexton show. Yeah. Speaker, Speaker Pelosi gave a press conference today in which she railed against President's, uh, President Trump's State of the Union, which if you look at the Data, or data, if you like to go with the soft A there, uh, you see that not only did Republicans overwhelmingly think it was excellent, I thought it might have been the best speech of Trump's entire presidency, certainly one of the strongest nights, one of the strongest moments, a, a, a pinnacle of Trump's political power and uh, the consolidation of the Republican Party behind him so far. But if you look at the polls, you'd see that independents overwhelmingly thought it was also a really good speech. So Republicans and independents think that speech was awesome, which means Nancy Pelosi only has one choice. She's got a fever, and the only prescription is more crazy. And that's what she decided to do. She gave this press conference today in which she attacked the president. Now, this also is this is a, a personal feud. This is one area, I have to say, where Trump really excels. One of the, the special skills that this president has is he forces his opponents, or he I should say he induces, not really that he forces, he induces his opponents to show us the full extent of their duplicity, their dishonesty, their craziness. He gets them to come out of their dug-in fighting position, so to speak, and show us who they really are. And this has been a, a feature of, of Trump and Trumpism now for, for years. And so now, as we look at what has gone on in the last few days, Nancy Pelosi has had to take preposterous lines, has, ha- has had to say absurd things about this president because her party is in disrepair right now, disarray. But also it has become very personal between her and Trump. That is increasingly the storyline that is emerging. Trump doesn't like her. Didn't shake her hand at the State of the Union. She tore up his speech afterwards. And now you could say, oh, this is not befitting a presidency. Well, it's also not befitting a Speaker of the House. You could get into all the decorum issues, but let's just understand this. They've been trying to destroy this president for years. 
They don't just want him to lose an election, folks. They want to send him to prison. They want to ruin his reputation, ruin his life, ruin his family's lives if they can. At, at what point is it just a normal human emotion? At what point does he turn into Brett Kavanaugh with just a parade of, of lunatic liars coming forward to destroy him, and he just lets it out that he's mad and this is a sham and it's wrong? When is the president allowed to feel that way? When is the president allowed to say, you know what, I've had enough? I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not, not going to play nicey-nice with Nancy Pelosi after this ridiculous scam of an impeachment process. Enough's enough. But Pelosi recognizes, I think she is savvy enough to understand that the momentum is all on President Trump's side right now, that President Trump is, in fact, the one who is looking like he will cruise to a re-election. You know, the Drudge Report today saying a 59.99% chance for re-election. I mean, over 60%, and that's before Trump has even really gotten going. That State of the Union address was just Trump cracking his knuckles before he really decides to roll up the sleeves and get into it for his re-election. And look, Democrats are already running for the hills. They're, they're frightened. They're, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And so they're just scrambling. Special counsel didn't work. I mean, I, you know, I've got a piece going up on thehill.com. Or it's, it's up on thehill.com, rather, that just looks at how to understand impeachment, you have to see this as another failed Trump removal effort because there have been so many of them. I mean, the two major ones have been the Russia collusion, all a lie, by the way, Russia collusion special counsel. That was meant to remove Trump, perhaps even with criminal charges. Remember, at the very end, they said, oh, well, we we can't even charge the president. But that could have been a fight. They could have said we would criminally charge him, but we didn't. Uh, we, you know, he, he should have been criminally charged. So as you as you look at what's really happened here, they've been rolling out all these different reasons to remove the president of the United States from office. Now, this impeachment over the Ukraine phone call, they brought up the 25th Amendment. They brought up the emoluments clause, the Stormy Daniels payoff using this disgraced lawyer, Michael Cohen. These are all just it's a continued effort to prevent the one thing that terrifies Democrats more than Trump himself. And that is a free and fair election in 2020 that allows the American people to make the choice that they want this president to do this for another four years. If Trump has already psychologically broken many of the Democrats, and I think he has, what comes up next? What is the next step? I ask that, and, and it is rhetorical. I don't have an answer I can offer up to you. Maybe they're just at, at full throttle crazy and they'll just keep their foot on the pedal and it doesn't change. I think that's the most likely outcome. Now, they've already got the, the dial on the amplifier to 11. It doesn't go any higher. So this is Spinal Tap reference for some of you who may not catch that, but there's, there's nothing beyond it. There's nothing more for them to do. They've already, every dirty trick, every narrative, every lie, all the things that they've tried to do, and not only has it not worked, it's not like Trump is limping through a presidency that he's, you know, his policies are ineffective and his his vision has been <clears throat> stymied and wounded. No, no, that's not the case at all. Trump has actually delivered incredibly well. 
I mean, the jobs report that just came out this week, I mean, it's everything is going in the right direction. You even have on, on the Drudge Report right now. And by the way, Drudge has not been all that pro-Trump recently. The last, I don't know, maybe the last couple of years, really. But 90%, according to Gallup, 90% of Americans are satisfied with their lives. This country is in a golden age right now. Other people won't tell you this. It's just so much easier. Oh, you know, the end is near. Oh, it's all going to crash and burn. And yeah, we've got problems. Things could change. I've got worries. I've got concerns. Bernie Sanders wins. wins. It's going to change a lot. But Democrats have put themselves in a position where they feel they have no choice but to oppose what is good and prosperous and peaceful and happy for America. They, they have to pretend that that's not really happening. Because how can they achieve power when their opposition, when Donald Trump and the Republican Party are doing a good job of governing? No, they, they want to turn the whole country into Los Angeles or San Francisco or increasingly here in New York City, which has had a big uh, spike in crime. I mean, they, they want to inflict the policies of socialism, identity politics, wokeism. They want to inflict all of that on us. They would say for our own good or because it's the right thing to do. And the only way that they can achieve the power to do that is to pretend that what's already being done, by and large, look, it's not perfect. I know that. But what's already being done by the government is pretty much on the right track. And the government is doing well. The government is doing its job. President Trump is succeeding. And there's no better example I can give you of how true this is now and how it's becoming inescapable. And now Democrats increasingly find themselves unable to have a counter narrative. You know, this this is the calm in between storms. They'll come up with something. I mean, I, I made a joke on, on Twitter I didn't realize how funny people would find it that just give it a matter. Just give it a few days and you'll have a story in The New York Times about some former senior aide to President Trump who thinks that the president has deteriorating mental health and is not of sound mind and should be removed. You guessed it with the 25th Amendment. And then CNN will put some Ph.D. from who knows what university and psychology on air will say, oh, well, if you look at the way President Trump blinked twice in that last speech. I mean, clearly he might have the early signs of dementia. I mean, and they'll do this. They'll do this because their, their audience has been conditioned to believe there's always an ongoing removal effort. They don't treat their audience like adults who can recognize we lost the 2016 election. That means this guy's president for four years. Let's see what we can do in the next election. That's the adult responsible approach to American politics. Democrats have completely abandoned that. As a party, they, they have no interest in that. It's the it's the forever removal campaign against Trump. Remove him now, today, find a way, whatever you got to do, get him out of office. And not only is that destroying the very institutions of government that they pretend to care so much about, which we've discussed here many times, it's very true, but it also requires the negation of how successful Trump has been. And by the way, I don't think it's because Trump is some super genius. I just think he's not preconditioned. He's not brainwashed by the swamp and by the, the, the policy approach of the elites. He doesn't care when people say mean things about him. He just does what a normal person would think is probably the smart thing to do. Trump offers America a common sense presidency. It's a term you don't hear that much anymore. It is a common sense presidency. And 
for many people across the country, including a lot of you I know who listen to this show, you knew that was what was really on offer. And that's what we have seen. And that if that was allowed to happen, it would work out pretty well. You know, it's a good thing when you don't have people in charge who believe that they can give everybody free health care. No one's taxes go up. Everyone's medical attention and, and access will improve. And, you know, we're all just going to be living in, in utopia. It's going to be, you know, Xanadu, Shangri-La, Nirvana, different places of extreme happiness. You already knew that. But that's not the way the world works. So Trump looks at the way the world actually works. Notice how I haven't even talked about Pierre Delecto yet. I will get there. Monsieur Pierre Delecto. The most famous turncoat of the entire Republican Party. We'll get there. Oh, Pierre, we're coming for you, Pierre. We got a lot to say. Um, but he, here's the, the, real, the real kicker for me. Pelosi today in her press conference, because she's just trying to buy the Democrats some time, trying to reset the narrative in some way. Pelosi was making the claim that this is the Obama economy. That's when you know they're just they're up against the ropes, man. I mean, you know, a, a couple more good shots from Trump and the Democrats are down for the 2020 count. It's the Obama. We're in the fourth year of the Trump presidency and it's the Obama economy. Really? That, that's, the, that's the story that we're supposed to buy into now? That Trump, who does things consistently that Democrats hate, say is terrible, say is going to be bad for the economy... The economy is better than it has, arguably better than it has ever been. I mean, the country is certainly wealthier than it has ever been. And you ask yourself, okay, what are Democrats going to say about this? Oh, now they're back to what they tried for the first 18 months when Trump's, when, when Trump's unemployment numbers looked really good. The stock market was doing really well. It's Obama's, it's Obama's uh, economy still. He's the reason things are still going so well. Yeah. That's a that's a really compelling talking point, isn't it? But this is this is what you say when you have no answer. And that's what the Speaker of the House, the most powerful Democrat right now in elected office in the country. It's what she's telling the American people in response to that state of the union, saying that it was disconnected from reality. Nancy Pelosi is disconnected from reality. I wonder if Nancy's waking up with, you know, with not a lot of energy and some headaches these days. Nancy looks like she is not up for this. If we're going to talk about how Joe Biden looks like he's not up for this. I don't think Nancy looks like she's up for this either. I don't know if it's just she's get she's getting up there or if this is a little more self-inflicted, but she looks like she could use some some time off. Cuz what she was doing today in that press conference, it was just blather. It was actually a little embarrassing to watch. She's not embarrassed by it, of course, because whatever she thinks will help the Democrats, but that's where we are, folks. Just remember that the economy is so amazing right now that the Democrat talking point has switched and they'll have to abandon this because they know it won't work. The Democrat talking point has switched to, well, you can thank Obama for this. Oh, yeah, because Obama was such an economic and free market based genius. Right. Hmm. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. The presiding officer directs judgment to be entered in accordance with the judgment of the Senate as follows. The Senate, having tried Donald John Trump, President of the United States, upon two articles of impeachment exhibited against him by the House of Representatives, 
and two-thirds of the senators present not having found him guilty of the charges contained therein. It is therefore ordered and adjudged that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby, acquitted of the charges in said articles. Acquitted. The President of the United States, Donald John Trump, acquitted. Forever. That is the verdict of the Senate. Democrats can say it's not a real acquittal, but we can just say it's not a real impeachment either. I mean, this is childish, right? This becomes this becomes stupid. This becomes something that's not even worth our time, but that's where they're going to go. They're going to just pretend that the things they don't like don't exist, and the things they do like are much more important than they are. That's where all of this is heading. Now, I wanted to focus in on this point for, first because... Democrats have failed in this scheme. Once again, another scheme to remove this president before the verdict of the American people through a free and fair election can be heard. But so now we have the verdict of a Senate trial. The verdict of the Senate trial is that President Trump is acquitted, not guilty. And there were very, very few surprises in this Senate trial. I also first want to say Mitch McConnell, good job. They call Mitch McConnell the Grim Reaper as if as if that's going to make people think he's less less cool. I don't know if Grim Reaper is better than Cocaine Mitch, but I like both of them. Mitch McConnell held it together, held the line. You know what he started doing as soon as that sham Senate trial was over? Confirming more excellent constitutionalist judges. That's what Mitch McConnell went to ba- went back to doing right away. Get that machinery rolling. More and more judges. So you can't have the hashtag resistance left-wing judiciary. So that's a big win. Congrats to Mitch McConnell for not falling for the, oh, just more witnesses. Just He learned from the Kavanaugh debacle. And we should give credit to politicians who learn, especially when they're on our side. But then there's Pierre Delecto. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You realize this is war. Donald Trump will never forgive you for this. There's a uh, there's a hymn that is uh, sung in my church. It's an old Protestant hymn, which is uh, do what is right. Let the consequence follow. Uh, I know in my heart that I'm doing what's right. I understand there's going to be enormous consequence and uh, and I don't have a choice in that regard. That's why that's why I haven't um, uh, been anxious to be in the position I'm in. I, when I heard there was going to be an uh, impeachment investigation, as I heard the evidence that was coming forward, I dreaded the responsibility I'd have. Um, but I was not willing to abdicate the responsibility given to me by the Constitution, nor to ignore my conscience out of personal and political uh, uh, significance. I mean, I, I, considerations. I mean, I, I had to follow my conscience. Team, I'm going to try to make you a deal here. We're going to dive into... Pierre Delecto, also known as Mitt Romney. We're going to dive into this now, and I'm going to hope that we don't really have to talk about Mitt Romney again for the rest of this election cycle, and maybe maybe not even have to talk about him again for longer than that on this show, because he doesn't deserve it. Let's just look at what happened here. There was an alignment among Republicans. Mitch McConnell had his caucus in line. Republicans knew this is a, this is a, an outrage. This whole impeachment is is ridiculous. Even if everything the Democrats said was true, it's not enough to remove a president from office. Not even close. It's a traffic ticket for a president. Who cares? 
If everything they said was it was all based on supposition, on lies, on on analysis that normal people could never believe. Oh, it was going. There was no reason to investigate the Bidens. Lie. Oh, it would have changed the election. And, and Trump was demanding this. And that's illicit lie. It wasn't going to change the election. Hillary Clinton and her husband were running a global slush fund, taking millions and millions of dollars from the Saudis, from whomever. They, he wanted to give a speech, I think, in North Korea at one point. As long as the money's good. But, oh, no, there was no corruption with the Clinton Foundation. The Democrats are willing to pretend that they are total morons, even dumber than they actually are, in order to get away with believing things that we know they don't believe, but presenting facts in a way that is useful to them in the short term. So here, here's what, what Mitt Romney has done. Mitt Romney broke ranks with Republicans, doesn't change anything. He voted to convict on abuse of power, not on obstruction of Congress, which I should note, at least he's not that dumb because Mitt Romney's not a dumb guy. We can't say he's not a dumb guy at all. He obviously understands, understands how to be a rapacious capitalist and maybe destroy some companies to make himself very, very, very rich in the process. Fine. Private equity can be a force for good. It also can destroy small towns and put a lot of people on the unemployment line. That's the reality of it. I know a lot of people who worked in private equity. They will tell you that behind closed doors. Yeah, sure. Sometimes it's, you know, creative destruction and sometimes it's just destruction. But Mitt Romney decided that his conscience dictated that he would have to go along on the abuse of power charge and join the insane, power mad, deranged, anti-Trump Democrats in the Senate and give them the only the only glimmer of uh, of a silver lining that they've had all week. I mean, Democrats have just been getting shellacked right now. Trump's State of the Union was huge. The Iowa caucuses we'll talk more about. Still don't know who won. Still don't know. Don't worry, Iowa. It's cool. Kick back, relax, come out to the coast, have a few laughs. Iowa doesn't have to rush, right? Who, who, at this point, who even cares who wins the Iowa? They're already talking about New Hampshire. We'll dig into it a little bit. It looks like Bernie Sanders probably is going to be the guy who wins in the end, as I go on air here. But Buttigieg is very close, and some people said he was the winner. And, you know, it's not the winner is Joe Biden, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So why did Mitt Romney do this? Let's really uh, let's unpack this for a moment. It, it has no effect on the president whatsoever. It doesn't do anything. So it's a vote that's entirely for show. It's a show vote. So Mitt Romney can show vote. This was about moral preening. Because otherwise, I would want to know, for example, I mean, let's really break this down. Why would Mitt Romney demand that he needed more witnesses, which was what we were hearing from him last week. Oh, I, I need more witnesses. I need to see more witnesses. If you're a juror in a murder trial, which I know this is not a criminal trial, which is why this whole thing also at the end of the day, it's just a political exercise. It's entirely political. Uh, but it is, it is, in fact, the definition of political. But if you're a juror in a murder trial, you don't say, you know, I really need to hear from a lot more witnesses and a lot more evidence. And then when you're told, sorry, there are no more witnesses and evidence, you go, oh, well, I'm totally sure this person's guilty. If you're totally sure they're guilty, why do you need more witnesses and evidence? If you've already come, if you can come to that conclusion with the evidence already presented, why would you demand to see more evidence? Wouldn't that be 
I mean, you'd think this is a pretty straightforward proposition, but you know, Mitt Romney just wanted a lot of attention here, and he got it. And now I see a lot of people who are either never Trumpers or still they still cling to this this uh, sense of, of of highly highly moral and often sanctimonious personal conservatism, right? That, that this is somehow a, a personal branding exercise for them. They're, they're the good ones that even if they like some of Trump's policies, they, they, they think that Trump is a departure from the morality that is necessary for one to be a real conservative. And, and they're praising Mitt Romney right now and saying, and we'll get to that. I mean, the media, of course, is Mitt Romney's a, a profile in courage. He's amazing. Pierre Delecto. Let's remember something, folks. The Pierre Delecto thing is not insignificant. Mitt Romney, as an actual human being whose face we know and whose name we know, had uh, over a million Twitter followers and was verified on Twitter. That same guy created a sock puppet account on Twitter so that he could, without consequence to himself, talk about how great he was and take cheap shots at Trump in the random bowels of the Twitter internet. This guy's worth... Two, three hundred million dollars. Okay, super rich. He's seventy some odd years old. He has a huge Twitter account. He has a huge public profile and following. He creates a sock puppet account to pump himself up and to take cheap shots at the president. Who does that? I mean, r- really think about that for a moment. Who does that? Somebody who is vain and petty. Now. Trump is thin-skinned, and sometimes I think he gets too far deep into it with people on personal issues. And he, you know, I wish he'd focus more on the. But then again, Trump is also attacked by more people in more ways than any human being I've ever seen in my life. Almost all of it deeply unfair. And he's still producing for us, and he's still a fighter. So at some point, you know, when do I have to say thank you for sleeping under the blanket of protection that he provides? Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, United States Marine Corps, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Uh, you know, at, at what point do we have to say thank you, President Trump, for dealing with all of this crap from these lunatics? And yeah, you're not perfect, but you're dealing with a highly imperfect situation. You know, Trump is a wartime conservative. And yes, yeah, sometimes there's mistakes that are going to happen. Sometimes he's going to go too far, but he's also fighting the battle for us. Mitt Romney's a turncoat. I mean, he is. That's he just. This was his opportunity, forever in his own mind, to pull a McCain and be the one who's above politics. You'd say, why would someone do this? Well, why would someone be so petty and vain in the position that Mitt Romney's in is to create a sock puppet account? And oh, by the way, and you can go back. I don't know how much you want to dig into his background in politics and the way that he flip flops on major issues. The way that he was abortion should be. Uh, legal and safe when he was in Massachusetts. I mean, he was practically more pro-abortion than Ted Kennedy when he was the governor. Uh, you look at the way that he's flip-flopped on all these different issues, and you start to see that maybe this guy's just a just an absolutely rank opportunist in his political life. But I'm more interested here in the personal. So Mitt Romney was a huge opponent of Trump's in the 2016 election cycle. Said that he was essentially a fraud and a liar and wasn't a success and all this other stuff. And you might at some point want to ask, well, if that's the way he feels, why would Pierre Delecto, bonjour, monsieur, why would Pierre 
uh, go and bend the knee and ask Trump to make him not just some random job in the administration, secretary of state. And I see the the oh so pure, the oh so pure hall monitor conservatives out there. Some of them are saying, oh, because he wanted to be in between a reckless president and, and his foreign policy and that he wanted to serve his country, even under difficult circumstances of Donald Trump as commander in chief. Donald Trump is better at foreign policy than Bush or Obama. I, I would I would argue that against anyone. I would win that argument against anyone. He is better at this. Again, common sense. I'm not. It's not that he's some genius. I don't think that he could easily, you know, name a dozen countries in Asia off the top of his head. Like I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that when there are choices, when there are decisions at the executive level that have to be made, this is a guy who gets it. The results are what matters. And Mitt Romney comes from that school of, well, I went to Harvard and I worked at Bain and I'm so fancy and I'm so smart. How could this guy be doing better than me? I mean, it's deeply personal for Mitt Romney. It's not about fealty to the Constitution. It's not about, oh, uh, this is what's required of, of my, my dignity and my honor as a member of the Senate and as an American. And all this stuff. I mean, I heard a speech yesterday. It was just pathetic. It really was. It was pathetic. No, Mitt Romney is vengeful toward Trump because Trump represents a challenge to Mitt Romney's sense of who he is, which is Mitt's the guy who leverages all the uh, leverages all the right institutions, has the right resume. Mitt is the elite. He is the establishment. And you'd say, oh, Buck, but Trump's a billionaire and he's so famous and everything else. Yeah, but he won't play by elite establishment rules. He doesn't march to their tune. He doesn't do what they say. And that's not allowed. If anything, you could say that Trump has turned his back on the elites that were sucking up to him for so long because of his money and influence. But Mitt Romney now has to deal with, well, this guy was able to do what Mitt wasn't, which was win a presidential election, and implement a lot of conservative policies, be fantastic with the judges he's put in place, preside over a booming economy. The American people are getting spoiled. The Trump economy is so good. I mean, this is my concern, is that we forget what it's like to be in the midst of like a slow Obama recovery and be told, sorry, it's the best it's going to get. Get used to it. Move, you know, move to Sweden if you don't like it so, so much. Okay. Mitt Romney will forever be remembered for what he did yesterday. And what he did yesterday was just show us all that we should maintain a degree of humility in our own politics. We should always remember that we have the capacity to be wrong. I thought Mitt Romney, based on everything that I could see and everything that I knew in the 2020, uh, 2012 election, I thought Mitt Romney seemed like a good guy, good man. He did a great job in the first debate against President Obama, absolutely annihilated Obama. I mean, if debates mattered and the media wasn't in Obama's pocket, that would have moved the needle. And, but then, of course, Candy Crowley physically you know, stood in front of and, and did everything possible to help Obama in that second debate on that critical moment about Benghazi. Because CNN's, you know, an unbiased news organization. And as we know, he lost, and he lost badly in 2012. It wasn't even close. But I thought Mitt Romney was an honorable guy. And so in that, I'm reminded that when you don't know someone, you don't know them. And a lot of us were, were if not fooled by him, certainly misled. But it's tough when you're evaluating someone from afar and you're also trying to pick them for a job, which is all we're doing. We elect politicians. We're not electing heroes. We elect people to lead us on matters of policy using the mechanisms of government that are in place. We do not put people 
in power and then just say, oh, wise king, tell us what's next. And there's a reason for that. Because we, as conservatives and as Americans, but let's start with conservatives, should always be deeply skeptical of politicians, all of them. That's why I try to maintain some skepticism even of Trump, despite all of his his incredible successes so far in office. What am I going to be saying to you if the market absolutely tanks, unemployment triples, uh, Trump you know, starts a, a war, an unnecessary war with Iran? I'm going to tell you this is a, it's bad, it's a disaster, and uh, we need to rethink a lot. I don't think any of that's going to happen, but I'm just saying we have to base our assessments on reality and have to maintain a healthy skepticism of all politicians. That's what holding them accountable would actually be. Holding accountable isn't saying everything someone does is amazing and perfect. I mean, this is why I tell you, Republicans, Trump, there's a nepotism problem here. There is. It's one that we're going to have to live with for a very long time politically, and it's one that I do not like and I cannot support. But, okay, does that mean that I don't celebrate the... 90 percent, 95 percent of Trump policy that I think is correct and that I agree with? Of course not. It's great. We have to maintain that honesty, have to maintain that integrity. Mitt Romney's integrity is he's very much a Comeyist, actually. I think, you know, maybe you could say Comey is a Romneyist, but I think Romney is a Comeyist, which is that his entire identity is wrapped up in being better than on a moral, more virtuous than more virtuous than than the others, whatever that means. I'm so deeply virtuous. Ah, that's why he went and asked for Trump's endorsement when he's running for Senate in Utah. That's why he bent the knee and said, make me your secretary of state. That's why he created some pathetic Twitter account to, to snipe at people online. Uh, it was utterly bizarre. And that's why this is a guy who changes what it means to have principles every other day, depending on what's best for Mitt Romney, just like James Comey. These guys really, Comey and Romney should become best friends. They, they would get along in a lot of ways. They both exude about the same amount of personal warmth and charm, and they both have shown their true colors to the country by inserting themselves in a national drama in a way that was all about them, while pretending that it was about everything other than them. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Team, I just want to clarify something because I, I mentioned yesterday with the very exciting news that we are on WOR, the biggest talk station in the country starting Monday. Um, that it, Nothing about the show you're listening to or watching right now changes at all. That is just an additional hour. I'll be doing four hours of radio a day starting on Monday. So those of you that listen to the podcast, listen on our 160 affiliates across the country that uh, watch us on Pluto TV uh, the first channel 248. Boom. Check it out if you haven't already. Nothing ch- that none of that changes during the same show, same time, same everything. I'm just for those in the New York area or those who have the iHeart app. If you want to listen on the iHeart app, you can listen anywhere in the country, anywhere you have Internet or cell access. Going to be doing a show for an additional hour, a New York centric New York tri-state area uh show for W.O.R. 6 to 7 p.m. Mondays. By the way, team, I would love as many of you as possible to tune in. Those uh, those numbers for listeners with a new show in the first few months are critical. So please listen on that iHeart app. Please spread the word. And if you are in New York City, listen on listen on 710 AM uh, WOR or uh, you can also obviously get it on the iHeart app. But nothing changes for this show. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
filth. It was corrupt. It was dirty cops. Uh, it was leakers and liars. And this should never, ever happen to another president, ever. I don't know that other presidents would have been able to take it. Some people said no, they wouldn't have. But I can tell you, at a minimum, uh, you have to focus on this because it can get away very quickly, no matter who you have with you, it can get away very quickly. It was a disgrace. Uh, had I not fired James Comey, who was a disaster, by the way, uh, it's possible I wouldn't even be standing here right now. We caught him in the act. Dirty cops, bad people. If this happened to President Obama, a lot of people would have been in jail for a long time already. Many, many years. Call it out, Trump. Don't be shy. Not that he ever is. He's absolutely correct here. He absolutely has the right idea. Speak truth about the dishonesty of Democrats. Let the American people know what you've been through. Let the American people know that it's very clear that the Democratic Party has been engaged in a series of soft coup attempts to undo the 2016 election. And it's getting more and more desperate because they realize that unless something big changes, they're heading for a whole lot of heartache in the 2020 election, too. And they can try that the, the old Russia, Russia, Russia playbook, but normal, well-adjusted adults will just be like, maybe Trump won because he won because he's better at this than you guys are. The president's right to be outraged by this. Impeach for what? Asking a foreign head of state about the Bidens. Joe Biden is a third-rate politician and a fifth-rate intellectual. And we're supposed to care so much about his wayward idiot son getting uh, some attention from the president of the United States after he got over a million dollars paid to him to be on the board of a company we all know he never should have been on. I mean, the Democrat media just go, what? Why would why would anyone have any questions about Hunter Biden? The crackhead who impregnated the stripper, then lied about it, refused to pay paternity and currently has just gotten remarried and maybe going to actually pay some child support now because people saw him driving around a brown new Porsche. That guy. Why would anyone why would anyone have any questions? I don't know. Gee, gosh, crazy, huh? Oh, Hunter Biden's this guy squared away. He's, you know, Hunter Biden's like a really sharp guy. And he got the job because he's so smart. I don't think so. I don't think people believe that. The media, though, is, oh, no one's ever found any, no one's ever found any wrongdoing. Oh, really? Or did we do a DOJ investigation of that? Because there's a whole lot more smoke there than there was about Russia-Trump collusion. Start with this. Start with this, my friends. For which of these investigations have we now found there is a greater legitimate basis the president of the United States and his campaign worked with the Russians to hack into email and release them as part of some international scheme to throw the election to the Trump campaign. That's Russia Trump collusion. Or the son of the vice president of the United States is getting paid $80,000 plus a month for a no-show job to be on the board of a company that's so corrupt it's ridiculous and... His father was running foreign policy in that country at the time for the United States when the country, Ukraine, desperately needed that U.S. help and aid. And, oh, by the way, that vice president also had a habit of telling them who to, who to fire from the prosecutor's office, very hands-on, 
Which one of those things is there a more legitimate basis for investigation on? I'm just wondering. Uh, we all know the answer. Oh, my gosh. Trump, look what he did. He asked a question about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. <gasps> Meddling in the election. Meddling in the election. You know who meddles in elections? Apparently Democrats. What's up, Iowa? We'll get to it. We got some additional news about that. Uh, but Trump also called out Pelosi for her ridiculous comments this morning. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, the problem is uh, you run out of words after a while talking about Democrats. Insane, unhinged, lunatic, ridiculous. I mean, these are not normal thought processes that they are going through. This is not what we should expect from normal, well-adjusted people. But but hold on a minute. Let, let's go to what the president, he just spoke before, uh, before we came on, and, and here's what he had to say about Pelosi's claim that the economy right now, year four of Trump's presidency, is the Obama economy. Please play it. We've done more than any administration in the first few years. You look at all of the things we've done. I watched uh, this morning as they tried to take credit for the stock market from, from, think of that. Let me tell you, if we didn't win, the stock market would have crashed. And the market was going up a lot before the election because it was looking like we had a good chance to win. And then it went up tremendously from the time we won the election till the time we took office, uh, which was November 8th to January 20th. And that's our credit. That's all our credit. And leading up to that point was our credit because there was hope. And one of the reasons the stock market's gone up so much in the last few days is people think we're doing so well. They liked the State of the Union speech. That's right. It was a State of the Union speech that gave a lot of people confidence and hope. And I mean, it was still one of the one of the most incredible presidential spectacles. And it was a spectacle, but one of the most impressive ones I've, I've ever seen. And I've watched a lot of them over the years. I've watched far too many of them, really. And very, very few of them, as I've told you, are even a little bit um, memorable. Um, but the only the only downside of this week, really, so far, has been Pierre Delecto's defection, which I think we should count the days until he just becomes a Democrat. More and more people who claim to be the true conservatives. This is now part, this is the end stage of the never Trump disease. The, the, the final days of never Trumpism are, you know, it's 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 shortness of breath and becoming a Democrat. That's what ends up happening when you when you've reached the terminus of Trump derangement syndrome, it's. I'm now actually a member of the Democratic Party. I want Democrats to win. That's how conservative, that's how much I'm the real Republican. Bill Kristol, former, what, editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, right? Yep. Voting for, Dem voting for Democrats, wants Democrats to win, says he's a Democrat now. Oh, that's how much he loves conservatism. Tom Nichols, somebody that I don't even know how many you've heard of, but... Runs around telling everybody what an expert is, expert he is, and how much he loves experts. I don't really know, know what he thinks he has expertise in other than talking about that. But he is also now a Democrat. You know, you have others as well, Republicans who, you know, Evan, Mc, Evan McMuffin. Uh, he's also a Democrat now, effectively. I mean, wants Democrats to win. So this is this is why the, the Pierre Delecto position on this is so interesting. Pierre Delecto... Is, is somebody who is holding himself up as a matter of, of principle. I mean, he, he's taking the position here 
that he only took this vote, which, by the way, is going to have electoral consequences. This is not a nothing vote. It's a nothing vote in terms of what it does to Trump, but it might, it could cost Republicans control the Senate, my friends. You know, it's going to put pressure on some different races on the Republican side. It's going to relieve pressure on some Democrats. It meant that Cinema and Manchin, who were wavering, could go forward. Uh, you know, because if even Romney votes for this, if even a Republican does, well, then it gives them cover. You know, Collins said that she was voting for acquittal. Good for her. Give her credit. You know, she had to sort of test the waters a little bit, but she did the right thing in the end. It's only Republicans that have people from their own team who just uh, who just bail. It's only Republicans that we find out eventually are fakes, are frauds, are people who cannot, who should not have been trusted in any respect ever. Um, and that's why, you know, when I, when I look at what Mitt Romney did here and I look at the way that he's setting this whole thing up, Let's be very clear. He claims to be the one that is so honest and good. I mean, Mitt's vote is something that was meant to be an inspiration, according to. Oh, we've got some of them talking about this. Could you play uh, MSNBC getting all all excited about Mitt Romney? Eight. This was a moment that people who've known Mitt Romney for a long time have always thought he was capable of, but we haven't always seen, right? Nobody's won big money betting on Mitt Romney to take big, bold public stands away from his own political self-interest. That's not been something that he has done throughout the course of his career. But as long as I've known him and covered him and known his family, the thought has been that he's just a good, decent person deep down inside. And I had thought from the minute that the senators took the oath and watching the senators take the oath that swearing an oath before God for Mitt Romney is like unlocking his superpower. I mean, there's no one in that chamber who was going to take that oath more seriously and more personally. Ugh, spare me. Really? That's not the only that's not the only sound. We have so many we could play. Here's Elizabeth Warren also on what what a de- decent, honorable beefcake Mitt Romney is. 20. I want to get your reaction to uh, what Senator Romney had to say today. He's the former governor of your state of Massachusetts. What was it like listening to that one Republican stand up and see this case uh, basically the same way you do? I thought I was listening to a decent and honorable man who stood up and did the right thing. Oh, gee, what a surprise. Democrat politicians like what Mitt Romney did. The media likes what Mitt Romney did. He bailed the Democrats out from having just a disaster of a week politically. So that's the only thing that he really accomplished. And he may end up hurting. You know, you had, uh, what was it? Uh, well, Doug Jones, I think he was going to he was going to vote to convict either way. Don't forget how important it is to someone like Mitt Romney that the elites respect him at least a little bit. I mean, they never really respect him. The problem with turning on fellow Republicans in the desperate hunt for a personal legacy and some some just little smidgen of approval from the media and the Democrats is that they use you, they quickly discard you, and then when all's said and done, they still think you're awful and think you're a turncoat and a traitor. Mitt's going to learn this. He's going to learn this the hard way. But right now he thinks he probably is going to be invited to you know fancy university functions and he's going to be somebody who's acceptable in polite society. 
But the question that I would need some of these people who are not forget about the left. I mean, it's, it's just purely transactional for them. Mitt did them a favor. So they're going to say he's honorable and great. And next week, they're going to go back to saying he gives old people cancer. He pushes grandma off the cliff. He abuses dogs. He was a bully in high school. He puts women in binders, whatever the heck that's supposed to mean. They're going to go right back to that. But for a couple of days now, because it's useful to them, Mitt Romney will be the great and honorable man. But I would want the Mitt defenders supposedly on the right to answer this for me. If Mitt cares so much about conservatism and the Constitution, American prosperity, protecting the unborn, securing our borders. If he cares about those things, why is it that when it really counts, he's willing to backstab the most effective defender of all those things and hand the lunatic Democrat socialists a win in the process? Why? How could he claim to care about those things and do this thing? Pierre Delecto is a very shady character. You never know how he will turn out on this thing, eh? Monsieur Pierre, he tells you one thing, he does the other. He is so honorable, so brave, except he betrays his own side and then curls his whiskers and says, uh, Merveilleux. Mitt changes nothing other than really our opinion of Mitt. And that's never going to change. And I will say this, Chris Wallace was right. As far as Trump's concerned, it is war. That's that's not going to change either. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. She's playing hardball like he does. You know, when they go low, we go lower. That's what that's the only thing. That's the only thing that works with these criminals and fascists who are running the country right now. Sorry, but that's what works. When they go low, we go lower. At least she's correct. You know, when Joy Behar gets the answer to the test right, I'll say so. And that is the Democrat approach. There's there's no there is no cellar. There's no basement. There's no bottom floor of how low they were. They are willing to go in their efforts to destroy this president. And instead, they offer you. The usual, the usual pretense of they're so honorable and decent and good. And Trump is such a bad, bad man. You know, the Democrats, they if you're somebody that thought that Trump's snub of Pelosi not shaking her hand was some egregious violation of governmental norms or or presidential duties or whatever. And then you thought that Pelosi ripping up the speech was like really cool. And yes, queen and the whole thing. uh, You should really think long and hard about why you have no principles. Or why you don't understand even what a principle is. Then again, there's always Chuck Schumer, speaking of no principles, telling us things that we know to be untrue, but that Chuck Schumer doesn't care how untrue they are. Here he is on his colleague, Mitch McConnell, who we should all be giving a round of applause to because Mitch, there were a lot. I knew conservatives. I knew some some well-known conservatives. Yeah, let's have more witnesses like they didn't learn anything from Kavanaugh. They didn't learn anything. They just want to extend the clock. To try dirty, to try more dirty tricks. Why allow them to do that? If the whole process is tainted, why not just stop it when you can stop it? You know there are there are principles in our judicial system. For example, you know if you don't have a warrant and you run into somebody's house and you find evidence of a crime that they've you know you find the murder weapon, even though they call this the fruit of the poison tree doctrine, even though you might be able to prove this guy's the murderer, guess what? 
You violated norms and processes to get there. Those are important things. You violated someone's rights. You can't violate someone's rights and then convict them based upon that violation. The entirety of the Democrats' impeachment and removal scam was effectively a fruit of the poison tree operation with the whistleblower. That whole thing, we never got to find out anything about that, right? Never get to find out. We're, initially, Schiff was saying we we're going to hear testimony from him, but then they would have asked him questions under oath like, so you and Schiff, you guys coordinated this, right? And we would have found out that Schiff, who still claims he doesn't know who the whistleblower is. If you have any questions about what a dishonest, lying hack Adam Schiff is, he looks the, he looks the American people in the eye and says, well, I don't, I don't know who the whistleblower is. I have no idea. Right. So many of the Democrats' arguments are premised upon us all just being really stupid, apparently. Maybe it's because they don't have better arguments to make, but I think there's also a, a tremendous amount of condescension that comes from them. They must really think we are quite stupid. They must really believe that. Uh, here's uh, Schumer, by the way, on... Did we ever did we already play McConnell and Schumer 5? No, please play. This has... T and I believe the American people will realize that this was one of the largest cover-ups in the history of our nation. I believe the American people will know who stood in the way of truth, who were afraid of the facts, who covered up. And make no mistake about it, the drip, drip, drip of evidence is going to keep coming out. With each new revelation, Republicans are going to have to answer for their votes. They chose to turn their back on the American people and stand for a cover-up. They chose to use ad hominem attacks and finger-pointing. Leader McConnell couldn't even say, bring himself to say what the president did was wrong when you asked him a few minutes ago. That's astounding. Maybe he believes what Dershowitz believes. The president can do, this president can do anything he wants. No, just acquittal. Just say it with me. Say it with me, Schumer. Acquittal. It's over. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's, let's talk about risk. We absolutely must defeat Donald Trump. It's not about and President Trump. This is Vice President Joe yeah. Biden going after you. Yeah, and uh, I've got to say that uh, I think we've begun to demonstrate on Monday, uh, uh, coming in first in the Iowa caucuses, my ability to put together the coalition that it's going to take to defeat Donald Trump, uh, getting urban, rural, and suburban voters together. Uh, and by the way, reaching out not only to fellow Democrats, but independents, and even some people leaving the Republican Party. And as to the achievements of the Obama administration, uh, I have enormous regard for those achievements. Uh, I mean, uh, if you look at what President Obama was able to do with two terms, it's extraordinary. And I had his back during that period, uh, even as a mayor in Indiana, where it wasn't always easy to step forward and uh, back up the president. But I think uh, the bulk of the credit for the achievements of the Obama administration belong with President Obama. Judge wants the Biden slot, and he's starting to make some gains there. Biden had a disastrous Iowa. 17%, I think, was the number. I mean, something really, really weak. What have I been telling you all along? Biden's a third-rate politician and a fifth-rate mind, so not impressive. Has never been impressive, will never be impressive. Just got really, was right place, right time with Obama. Right place, right time. That's all That's all it really came down to. And that then brings me to, well, first, I, I do think that, that Buttigieg has been able to shift. He's been able to pivot and go from the smarter, 
uh, the, the smarter, better O'Rourke with a better resume to perhaps the young, he is articulate, he is intelligent, the young, articulate, intelligent uh, establishment Democrat candidate that they can rally behind. He, he sees a lane, folks. You know, the, we, we talk about how things will shift. Buttigieg now sees his lane is to say, OK, old man Biden, you're done. This is going to be my lane now. That's what he's hoping for. And who knows what will happen in New Hampshire, where I think Biden has just taken the day off today. Remember, Biden also hasn't been dragged into all this you know, Senate trial nonsense. So he's been able to be in. He was able to be in Iowa for a long time, doing a lot of a lot of work, a lot of ground, you know, a lot of ground and uh, uh, ground game stuff. And that then brings me to the Iowa situation, which I, I just have to laugh now. I mean, this is it's it's so ridiculous. The Democrats, it's such a debacle. And I sit here and I can tell you, we don't we don't really know who won. I mean, we think it's probably Bernie. And Bernie also had a twenty five million dollar campaign uh, campaign donation haul for the month for the last month. That's more than his opponents had, I believe, in the previous quarter. So there is there is Bernie momentum right now. It's a real thing. And that then brings us to, well, what the heck happened in Iowa? Did Bernie win or did Buttigieg win? It's one of the two. And this has gotten so out of control that here, here's the story from CNN. Democratic National Committee Chair Tom Perez called for a re-canvas of all results in Iowa on Thursday as the state's Democratic Party continues to struggle to verify the data from Monday night's caucuses. The move is a significant step and raises further questions about how long the results of the key Iowa caucuses will remain outstanding. In a re-canvas, all the numbers that were released by the state party would be checked against the results that were recorded at caucus sites. Now, some of you probably aren't really paying all that much attention to this uh, at this point because we're already focusing more on New Hampshire. And I think there's a producer mark. Isn't there like a Democrat debate on Friday? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, they're doing deba- a debate on Friday. I don't know why that just strikes me. Debate is like homework for all of us, right? I mean, nobody really, no one's like, ooh, it's Friday night and the mood is right. Let's watch the debate. TGIF. I used to watch that. Did you ever watch? Oh, you're too young to have known what TGIF is. It was on Fridays. I forget even what channel it was on, but they would have Full House and then Family Matters. And then uh, sometimes it was Perfect Strangers. Then they moved to the show Dinosaurs. That was kind of a weird show. I watched TGIF. That's the thing that yeah. they kept going? Yeah. Which I was, loved Full House and Family Matters. I was a family. I, I love Family Matters. Yeah, Urkel. Yeah, the guy. I, I was. Well, it wasn't just just all of the whole. I know, but the Urkel's the memorable one. Yeah, of course. And the show was kind of built around Urkel. Yes. Jaleel White was his name. I watched the yes. show so many times that I actually remember some of the names of the uh, the various cast members. You so. would do that more with Full House because they actually went on to stuff. Well, that's that's true. Well, you know that the dad is the is the Bob cop. Saget. No, 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 no. That's the dad. The dad oh, yeah, from he's in Die Hard. He's from Die Hard, yeah. and that was when he first played this role of a, of a of a police officer. Reginald Van Johnson, something Look like at that. You, yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he uh, he managed it, and that, that was a really. I mean, I thought that was a really good show. He I, made a I, cameo in Brooklyn Nine Nine because the main character and and whoever Andy Samberg plays is obsessed with Die Hard. Oh, yeah. I'm also. I mean, I'm obsessed with Die Hard too. So I got to give Andy Samberg credit on that. I also uh, think it's funny that the character of that Bronson Pinchot or Pinchot, I don't know how you say it, plays. You know, he plays in the Beverly Hills Cop movie. 
He plays Serge, who wants to make a cappuccino with a lemon twist. And then he that was really the basis for the character Belke, Belki Bartokomis in the show Perfect Strangers, which I watched many, many, many times. I've never seen that. You've never seen Perfect Strangers? No. Oh man, it's it's like he's a he's kind of a country country bumpkin immigrant from Greece, and uh, you know he does like the dance of joy and talks about milking goats and he lives in Chicago with like his kind of curmudgeonly producer Mark. Ah, um, he he has his own producer cousin. Mark. He has his own producer Mark. Oh and he, wow. and he lives with him, so that's their roommates. Yeah. That must be terrible to live with someone like me. I mean, <laughs> just ask my one, day, one day we got to get Mrs. Mark to call into the show and just tell us, you know, what's going on in, in, in Mark world, you know, for real. Like what, what the, what Mark behind the scenes is really like. Yeah, what I'm angry about today. Yeah. yeah. Some, something like that. The penalty box as it were. Mm. But anyway, I watched TGI. I like the show back, back to Iowa, the debate, the debacle that is Iowa. Uh, we, we don't know what the results are going to be. We don't know where this is going. All we know at this point is that, Wow. This is the best. This is the best the Democratic Party can manage under these circumstances. That is, that is pretty astonishing. Um, they, maybe a few lessons from this. Why have an app for this? There are already. I, this is no one even really seemed to think about this. There already are apps out there that can that can log and count and do all this, and they're you know tried and true. Why create a new app for the Iowa caucus? You know, there's they've done some studies. I mean, I think I have probably fifty apps on my phone. And I use like 10 of them. Maybe I even have more than that. Maybe it's closer to 100 now. And I use like 10 of them. Of course, it's the iHeartRadio app. Fantastic place. Listen to the Buck Saxton Show on WOR Monday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern, as well as the Buck Saxton Show uh, every day, 6 to 9 Eastern in national syndication across the country. So I guess we actually will technically be on, I just, producer Mark, are we going to be on the iHeart app at the same time in two places? Is that how that's going to work? Yeah, with two different shows. Right, with two different shows. Yeah. And the podcast is out like four hours earlier than that, so just listen to that. Yeah. We got we a lot of options. We, yeah. we, we, just, we just go where the audience wants us to be. That's how we roll here. Buck Sexton all the time. Bucks at 24-7 Buck. That's the, that's the new way to do it. Um, so, where was I? Uh, oh, yes. There is this reality of... They don't know what the heck is going on in Iowa, and we're days past this. I, this is It's a bad look for the Democrats, especially because they're supposed to be the competent administrators, at least in their own minds. They're making all these promises about how if they have more power, once they're in power, if they have even more ability to do what they want to do, uh, it'll all just go so very, very well for the country because they're basically very stable geniuses themselves. And... This shows us that they have lots of work to do on that front. And it also, I think, is a, is a reminder to many of us that you just don't want the government in charge of stuff. It shouldn't be, you know, it, you want the government in charge of the absolute minimum necessary to have a, a government do the functions that are constitutionally prescribed. That's it. I mean, that, that's what you want in place. You want the absolute bare minimum because government is not good at things. And I worked in the government. I know something about this. The government is not good. At most things. So that's what I take from Iowa. And then also that Joe Biden dramatically underperformed. And everyone looks at this now and says, wow, maybe Biden does have a glass jaw, so to speak. Maybe Biden is not the front runner that so many were saying he was and that the rest of us who just watch politics all the time are saying the Democrats have got to be kidding. Right. They, they really think that Joe Biden is going to beat Donald Trump. I don't think so. 
You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Ms. Hutchinson, I also want to thank you about bringing up the poverty draft and this idea of a bootstrap. You know, this idea and this metaphor of a bootstrap started off as a joke because it's a physical impossibility to lift yourself up by a bootstrap, by your shoelaces. It's physically impossible. The whole thing is a joke. And yet AOC herself was, as she has described, a, a bartender who went on to become a congresswoman before the age of 30. Isn't that, and didn't come from a lot of money, didn't come from a lot of, of privilege, uh, may have benefited in the college application process, I don't know, may have benefited from the emphasis on diversity in applications, which is one of those areas of, of American society where we're all supposed to accept that that's the way that this is going to be. We're all supposed to say that affirmative action is a, a good and moral thing, but we're not allowed to talk about it. And if we talk about it, it makes people uncomfortable. And if it makes people uncomfortable, we have to shut up. Oh, okay. It's such a good thing that no one's allowed to really discuss it. That's good to know. But she resents the idea that what she did, which is which is pretty remarkable. I mean, you have somebody who is an ignoramus, who is now one of the most famous politicians in the country, has a massive social media following. She resents the idea that conservatives are, are constantly trying to reinforce across the country to people of all races, all ethnicities, all, background, all, all backgrounds, that you too can do this. She doesn't like that model because it's much better to create a culture of victimization to, to perpetuate that mentality and to allow people to blame all of their problems on external factors and not, not present them with the empowerment and the responsibility, the accountability necessary to make better choices in one's own life and then benefit from those choices going forward. No, AOC represents an ideology that tells you just give more authority, give more power to the government and the government will take care of this. The government will take care of your health care. The government will take care of your schooling, of your housing, whatever, of your food. It's like we learned nothing from the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's like we've learned nothing from Venezuela and these other. And when they, when they bring up places like, like you know, Norway and Sweden, I mean, Nor Norway is a very small, homogenous country with massive oil reserves that essentially pays for the welfare state. Okay, I mean, so is that is, is is our plan to try to replicate that? Because we're very different. We're we're bigger than that. We're much more diverse than that. And we, while we are the global oil and gas superpower, although. The Democrats want to put a stop to that. Uh, we don't have a small population that can just have its schooling and its uh, welfare programs paid for just off of fossil fuel revenue. Sweden is not really a socialist country. It is a high taxation country with a very large welfare state, which you could argue is a form of socialism. Um, but then you also want to ask yourself, do we do we really do you really want to you want to live in Sweden? Think about that for a moment. You know, does, do you really want to elect Bernie Sanders, who I think would be best off as the mayor of Stockholm? You, you really want that to happen? Uh, and by the way, what he's proposing in many ways is more radical than what you have in some of those countries. The programs that he's advocating for. You know, there's this story that didn't get nearly enough attention. And it was written by the Washington Post, actually, because I think the Post is not a Bernie. I don't think the Post is pro-Sanders. The Post is an establishment Oregon and they're more on the Biden war in camp. I, I did that, but did we see who they, who they, um, you know, endorsed? They haven't endorsed anyone yet, right? 
I don't believe anyone yeah. but the Times has yet. Yeah, the Times hasn't. The Des Moines Register, right? Well, endorsed, I mean, like, the, the national. No, papers. no, the, the New York Times endorsed Warren and Klobuchar. Yeah, the New York Times. Right, the New York Times. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. But the Washington Post hasn't. Hasn't. I don't think they've. I mean, no one cares about their endorsements anyway. It's all crap. Uh, but there was a story about how Bernie Sanders is planning all of these executive orders when he becomes president, including declaring a climate emergency and just usurping the legislative process and banning the export of crude oil. Banning it. That's how dumb, that's how crazy these libs really are now. They look at things that have been incredibly beneficial for this country. They look at things that have been working remarkably well, that have resulted in explosions of wealth and prosperity. And they say, let's stop that thing because of a fairy tale we keep telling each other. One that is ultimately rooted in the need for a greater government control. One that is ultimately a function of the Democrats' desire for more control over every aspect of your life. Green New Deal, they call it. Oh, that's that's quite a quite a euphemism. It's a it's a it's a terrible idea, as we all know. And yet here we are, still having to deal with people who think it's a good idea. By the way, AOC also spoke about Rush Limbaugh's very touching moment where he got the um, Medal of Freedom. Here is what uh, the leader of the Democrat progressive side of the aisle had to say, play 10. The Presidential Medal of Freedom is an extraordinarily sacred um, award. We're talking about putting someone on the same level as Rosa Parks, you know, for example, in terms of their contributions to American progress. Uh, Rush Limbaugh is a violent racist, um, but even just on top of that, um, to do it in the middle of a state of the union and not even dignify it with its own ceremony as it has, it, there's all sorts of norms that are being violated, not just for people's humanity, but also it truly just cheapens the value of it. Um, also, him pretending to be surprised was such a joke. This has been news all day. There have been multiple reports for multi from multiple news outlets saying that Rush Limbaugh was going to receive the Medal of Freedom, and then Trump announced it, and he had to, like, you know, pretend that this was some kind of Oprah moment. Um, was so disingenuous. Uh, she's a moron. And Rush didn't know about this, and I know for a fact that Rush did not know about this. I've been told by people who would know. Sleazebag. And, uh, yes, you're referring to AOC. Yeah. And, of course. Come on, yeah. give me more credit than that. Yeah. And she also, when she's talking about who's received the Medal of Freedom, um, she's leaving off, oh, I don't know, such amazing luminaries like Tom Brokaw received the Medal of Freedom. Give me a break, okay? That's, you know, when we're talking about random lib journalists who are getting this thing, I don't think we really need to hear about how, oh, it's it's Mother Teresa. Okay, yeah, a lot of people get the Medal of Freedom. Rush Limbaugh absolutely deserved the Medal of Freedom, and AOC is an imbecile. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's the ugliest major building you've ever seen? I want you to really think about this for a second. What is the building that you can think of that is the, the thing that looks like it's straight out of the 
coldest, darkest days of the Soviet Union, because there's plenty of them around us in this country, too. And there's a reason for that. If you think about the ugliest buildings you've ever seen, you may think of, oh, I don't know, the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C., if you've ever been there, or the FBI building in D.C., the Hoover Building. Um, I worked for a while at the NYPD Intelligence Division, and you'd go to a place here called 1PP, One Police Plaza, the main headquarters of the NYPD. And I used to joke that every time I went in there, I was worried that they were going to take me into a basement and start putting electrodes on me because it looked like the headquarters of the KGB. The KGB waits for no one. I don't know if you've ever seen Knock Knock, who's there, the KGB, and then slaps him in the face. The KGB waits for no one. That's uh, from The Office. I always like that one. But I've got the KGB on my mind because I think The Americans is such a good show. Why am I telling you about ugly buildings? Because President Trump wants to do something about it. There's a draft executive order. I think this is pretty interesting, folks. I, I really do. There's a draft executive order that would start to uh, push the federal government in any new construction, any new buildings, away from modern designs. Uh, that there would be essentially a more uniform aesthetic code, architecturally speaking, for the federal government, where, where effectively you would have a, a neoclassical uniformity to federal government buildings. Things like the White House, the Congress, right? The Capitol building. I mean, that's the, everything should look a little bit more like that and a little bit less like the Hoover building, which if you've ever been in it, and I have, if you've ever gone to some of these places, you you know, the DOJ, for example, still has some neoclassical, the facade. I mean, there are some of the, tre the Treasury building is beautiful right next to the White House. Um, but this all comes from a movement in architecture that we know as brutalism. And it stretches back to, we mentioned Sweden before, it stretches back to Sweden. I believe it was called knee brutalism. And it was a reference to a really ugly cinder block looking cement house that an architect in Sweden uh, referred to as, as knee brutalism. And then brutalism just became the way we described it. And this became an architectural fad among, or style, among uh, architects starting around the 50s into the 60s. The Brits picked it up and... Now, you might say, well, where did they find this from? Well, it really also was always influenced by the most functional, cold, lumpy, austere uh, buildings of the Soviet bloc. The Soviet Union didn't build big, ugly cinder boxes, uh, cinder block boxes, rather, because they thought it looked so cool. They built them because they were easy, they were functional, and they didn't have a sense of, of style, panache, a, a sense of elevation through construction. It was all just, we'll make you this building because it will keep the rain off your head and keep you from freezing, maybe, in winter. That was it. I remember when I went to Prague for the first time, I think I was about 13 years old, and on the way into the city, you know, pretty old city in Prague, the, the Charles Bridge. It's just, it's beautiful. I mean, the, the Prague looks, a lot of parts of Prague in the old city looks like something you'd see in a Disney movie or in a, in a storybook. But when you're going in, there's these housing developments that, that you can basically hear the Soviet national anthem playing in the background as you drive past them. You go, oh, look at that. Just gray, depressing concrete boxes. 
And this became an architectural style. And it's a sh it's a shame they have marred America with this architecture. I mean, the, the worst architecture in the history of of construction is brutalism. You know, you drive around even in the New York area where I am right now. I'm sure this is true where you are, too. You probably, you know, if, if you have a high school, for example, a, a big high school that was built in the 70s, it, it looks like someone took a concrete box and drilled a couple of holes in the windows and said, here's your high school. Enjoy. It, it, this is true of a lot of of, uh, you know, city sort of city council buildings. And, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum would be something like the New York State Assembly House, which I believe at the time it was built was the most expensive building to have ever been built in the United States, which which is garish, but but pretty amazing, too. Uh, th that's the opposite end of the spectrum where you maybe spend a little too much money on things looking beautiful. But Trump is trying to take some action on this. And it's just so funny to watch people flip out and say, oh, it's going to be, you know, everything's going to be Trump Tower. He's not, it's not, you're not going to be, the White House is not going to be a gleaming glass tower with lots of gold and that's not going to happen. What this is trying to do is to reestablish an aesthetic for the federal government to build buildings that aren't so depressing. I know you might say, Buck, who cares, whatever, but, you know. Do you think the White House should look like a concrete bunker? Or do you think it's a nice, it's good that the White House looks like the White House? You know, do you think the Capitol building should look like a bomb shelter? Or is there something, is there some majesty? And then just take that across state governments and local governments and, and all, all these government buildings made really in the, in the 60s and the 70s are the worst. I mean, I, I think about, and even at my, my college, I think I might have told some of you this story before on air, but in this uh, art appreciation class that I took, which is a pretty decent class, it was really kind of a history of Western civilization slash art appreciation. It was all right. But the, to start it out, the guy says, the, the professor, I don't remember his name now, but he says, you know, why does any of this stuff matter? And he's like, well, if you don't have aesthetics, if you don't understand what is aspirational, what is beautiful, what, you know, why, why people care about, about art and about, and about architecture and about music and about... Take a look at this. And he showed us the current library that we had there, which was br it's brutalist modern architecture. It's like you took two concrete boxes and put another concrete box on top of it and then just had some slit windows put in. I mean, the thing is, it's ugly. It's depressing. You don't want to go inside. It feels like you're walking into a science experiment where they're going to put electrodes on you. It really does. And he showed us what before... They came before some, you know, new board of directors came along and said, well, uh, brutalism and modernism is really what we need on this campus. So let's they tore down a, a stone Gothic structure that was it, it was called Walker Hall. It was absolutely it was beautiful. And he showed us all these photos of it, they tore the whole thing down. And, you know, you looked at one bit, you looked at the original building and you would have thought to yourself, this is a place, it looked like something out of, out of Harry Potter. You know, this is a place where you'd go to learn wizardry, or this is a place where if you're going to study chemistry, at least you're not going to walk inside depressed every day. Now, I don't want to overstate how important, you know, buildings are and all the rest of it, but there is there is something here. And I think it's interesting that Trump, who's accused of being such a such a barbarian and always, he's so uncultured, and I mean, he does order his steaks. Well done, folks. I don't, one day I'm going to talk to him about this, be like, sir. What's with, I mean, okay, well done, but with ketchup? 
Then again, I am an aioli, I am an aioli eater, which is just a fancy way of saying I like mayonnaise with oil in it, which is all really aioli is. Um, but Trump wants this executive order to uh, to go through. Um, he wants to do this. You know, I think that some of the I'll just tell you, I think that some of the newer museums, I mean, for example, the East Wing of the National Gallery of Art is an abomination. It's it's terrible. It's depressing. It's ugly. It's bad. Um, I remember, you know, they they uh, they have re they've redone all a lot of these buildings in recent years, and they they make the interiors nice, and they don't want to touch the exterior of them, but they really should go back to classical architecture in federal buildings. I think Trump's right on this one. I know it's not that big of a thing, but you know, modern architecture. I don't know what was wrong with people in the 60s and the 70s in this country and in Europe, but they built the ugliest structures in the world. We should, they should all be, you know, AOC says for the Green New Deal, we got to, we got to rebuild every building in the country. That's crazy. We obviously can't do that, but every brutalist building that we can tear down to the studs and start over again, we should, and we should go back to an aesthetic that is actually aspirational and elevating and worthwhile. Um, I think the building we are in right now, producer Mark, could be considered brutalist. It is what? It is a big concrete box. What? It's actually known. The building we're in is known as one of the best architectural designs ever. What? The old. It's the old AT and T building. That's where we are. Have you seen all the the uh, the stuff in the lobby? How beautiful the lobby is. The lobby is nice. Yeah. The outside of the building is a big red. Maybe not the outside. Plus, but... when I'm, I'm talking about architecture, not okay. interiors. Yeah, but it's a very famous building we're in right now. But I know it's famous, but I don't. I don't know. I mean, and now you've told everybody where we do the show, by the way. So hopefully the crazies. Uh, yeah, because they couldn't just Google the, that. The crazies aren't going to be waiting for us in the lobby. You know, yeah. now I'm going to have to use the back entrance all the time. There is no back. Dude, entrance. this building is a giant red brick box. That's what this building is. There's a you want you want a beautiful building. You got to go back to uh, the 1920s. You go to the Chrysler Building. You go, you know, that's that's where you actually have architectural aesthetic that's worthwhile. This thing is, this thing is just functional. The lobby is beautiful. The lot, okay, the lot, but yeah, that's, but that's part. That's architecture. You're talking about interiors. I'm talking about the exterior. Uh. I'm talking about the exterior. It's a different. It's a holy, the holy. That's what I mean. They'll redo the anyway. Bruce and Mark and I have different aesthetics, obviously, but this building I do not think is particularly beautiful. I think the Chrysler Building. Art Deco, neoclassical, that's what we should all go to. And now let's talk about some things that matter to all the rest of you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right. Producer Mark is actually technically correct. As I look at the facade of the AT&T building that we're currently in, it would classify as Art Deco, which I do like, but I still think it's a big, ugly red box. Wow. Man, I was right. It's see, almost like I'll, I I'll, 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 I'll admit it. All right, you yeah. won this one. Uh-huh. Yeah, where's Clemson? Where's Clemson? I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. He's, he's te- no, te- congratulations. He is, he is technically correct about the ugly red box that we are in. It is a landmark Art Deco yeah. skyscraper from the 1930s. Fine. Whatever. I just, you know what it is? Because we're here in the hut. I can't appreciate all the exterior beauty because I'm working so hard on the inside. A hut outside so we can look at the building. There we go. We should have an outdoor Freedom Hut so then we can check it out. There is plenty of brutalism down here, though. The AT&T building at 33 Thomas Street, for example, is an example of brutalism. So there are brutalist skyscrapers dotting lower Manhattan. 
This happens to not be one of them. Blah, blah. Producer Mark was technically correct. All right, let's move on to something that's more important than Producer Mark being right. For example, um, let's see. I wanted to talk to you about some of the things that Trump is doing. Oh, we didn't really get into the prayer breakfast this morning. We didn't really have much of a discussion about that. Um, Here is what the president says. Play clip uh, 16, please, about this. A lot of people out there that aren't liking what we're doing, and we're pursuing medical breakthroughs to save premature babies because every child is a sacred gift from God. Trump doesn't get enough credit for uh, for this, but he is the most outspoken president who has taken the most action on issues of life of any president that I can think of. Uh, he's somebody who, when he came into office, I remember we were being told by many, many conservatives now, some of whom have become Democrats because they hate Trump so much. But we were being told that this was all a, a front, that this was a, it was a hoax, that Trump was not going to follow through on these issues, and that he was not going to be a pro-life president. It turns out those who were willing to believe, those who were willing to go along with it, were correct, that he would be a pro-life president. In fact, he'd be a very effective one and a reliable one. And I think that that's important. He also is someone who is trying to do more for uh, medical research and prescription drugs. I mean, he he talked about breakthroughs to save premature babies. And this is an area where you see there's a lot of politics that influences some of these decisions. Because if you can save, as, as the president highlighted during the State of the Union address, if you can save a, I think it was a one pound, the, the girl that they, uh, that they were uh, cheering for, had been, I think, a one-pound premature baby and born at about 20 weeks. And she lived in now. She's a healthy, functioning young girl. Everything's fine. Well, if you are able to leave the mother's womb at 20 weeks, what does science say about whether or not that's a human being? It is clearly a human being. And in fact, it's a human being who is viable. And viability keeps getting pushed further and further back. And this is a threat, very much a threat to the uh, abortion lobby, which will never will never change any of its positions based on science or based on breakthroughs. They just they have a view of this, and it's a view that they will never they'll never switch from. They will never change. Um, and then also, Trump did take a bit of a swipe, I think, at uh, at Mitt Romney at the at uh, Pierre Delecto at the breakfast play fifteen. I don't like people who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong. Nor do I like people who say, I pray for you, when they know that that's not so. That was a double swipe, actually. You see, the one was against Mitt Romney for being, oh, I, my faith is pushing me to... No, he's vo- Mitt Romney voted against Trump, and not, not to go back into this conversation, but Mitt Romney voted against Trump because he hates Trump. It's not because God told him to. It's not because the Constitution demanded it of him. It's because he doesn't like Trump. And this was the best chance he ever got to just stick a thumb in Trump's eye. But also that Nancy Pelosi says that she prays for Trump. First of all, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't be... I'm not in Nancy Pelosi's mind. Well, that would be interesting. Or her heart. Does she strike me as the kind of person who prays? Look, there there are some some far left libs who are constant, including far left libs who are, who say they're Catholics who are constantly 
advocating against church doctrine and policy who I guess think that they are quite religious. Even, I mean, actively, it's one thing to say, oh, I support the poor and, you know, these things that are really just virtue signaling dressed up as as religious faith for, for libs. Uh, but there are other areas. I mean, abortion is the most notable one. There are others actually uh, being in favor of uh, same-sex marriage, for example, is, is against Catholic church teaching. It's not against all church teachings. And but, you know, maybe Pelosi prays. Maybe she doesn't. I can tell you this. She doesn't play. She doesn't pray for Trump. That I do not buy at all. I do not think that that's something that anybody believes in this uh, whole process. So, you know, Trump this week has had a really strong one. I'm glad to see that he's pushing back, punching back, fighting back. And the results really do speak for themselves. But we're still going to need to hear it a lot. We're going to need to hear it because the media doesn't want to talk about it. And we're going to need to hear it because this president has been able to keep faith with his base in a way that makes him very likely to get reelected, very likely to have people turn out for him. And even in some ways that are surprising, I mean, he's pushing for you know, research for uh, to save premature babies. He's pushing for uh, prescription drug prices to go down. I mean, he's taking action in areas that are really effective in helping people. Uh, and they're not necessarily things that when he was initially running for office, you heard a lot about. He also claims, of course, the wall is going to go up and that there'll be hundreds of miles of wall built. I, I, we got to see on that one. I think he's trying. I think he could have tried earlier and harder. But he's certainly telling us that by Election Day, there'll be a lot of a lot of wall up. And that's going to be that's going to be very, very helpful for his prospects. So, and I can tell you this, if Trump wins, he's going to have to be praying for Nancy Pelosi and all the Democrats because they are they are going to be in absolute freakout mode. They're going to think the world is ending. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Team Buck. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. That is how you can become a part of all the action that is the Roll Call, which is how we get this show uh, crack-a-lacking at the end. And uh, just as, as a reminder, again, those of you in the New York area or who have the iHeart app, if you want to check out the New York-centric show, we will be doing, it's not just New York, but it'll be a little bit more of a New York flavor uh, on WOR 6 to 7 Eastern starting this Monday. Please do. But remember, it changes. Not, the show you're listening to does not change. Everything that you are doing right now, listening, watching, that's exactly the same. We're not changing any of that. It'll still be three hours, still be on 160 affiliates across the country. You, know, you still listen to us in in Baltimore, in Fort Wayne, in Austin, in in Los Angeles, you know, I mean, everywhere. You'll still be able to hear the show everywhere you're used to listening to it. So I don't think that's because I saw some people when I posted the announcement yesterday were like, what do you mean? What happened to the other hours of the show? No, 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 no. The new hour is an additional hour. The WOR, W-O-R which is the station here in New York, that's an additional hour. So you can listen to that as you, as you like. Um, if you're in the New York area, though, it is really important. If you're Team Buck and you're in the tri-state area and you can get – uh, 710 WOR on your radio, please do tune in that way. 
because that's going to be very, very important to us going forward. Um, and I think you'll like it because I'll be talking about like, hey, the subway, I'm in New York. Hey, I'm eating a pizza. But it's gluten-free. But, you know, really, like it'll be a little more of a new, you know, producer Mark's local knowledge will also come in handy. He'll be able to tell us about all the greatest things about Long Island versus New Jersey, or as I like to call it, Jersey. I'm sorry to disappoint, but producer Mark has nothing to do with that show. That's true, but you can send me emails and tell oh, me okay. about these things. I'll text so that you I have, during you're the gonna show. Be yeah. my, you're going to be my eyes and ears for those, but I don't know anything about Jersey. I don't I, live there yet. Yeah, but you will. Okay. Mm. You know, you, you're, you're providing all kinds of information mm. and content. Apparently, you study architecture in your spare time. I don't even yeah, know. that's what I do. I don't even know. You know, oh, this building got, yeah, the building has got awards for design, whatever. Building's Sorry still that the, I know things about the building I work start, in. Sorry, you know, those, yeah, yeah. Oh. It's just technically, he was technically correct. All right, let's get to Paul. Oh, no, did we get to Kyle? No, we did not. Here we go, Kyle. Buck, the Democrat attitude during the State of the Union tells you everything you need to know. They'd rather see this country tank than see it succeed under Trump's leadership. I don't know how they can't be happy for this country and all the success we've had, but I guess it'd be hard for them to get the votes uh, if their base wasn't always enraged about something. Democrats push doom and gloom to gain power with empty promises and failed policies, and we actually are doing great as a country using the opposite formula. They do whatever they can to destroy those who stand against them. Sorry, I'm reading through this one a little fast. That has a ter- has to be a terrible way to live. They all seem miserable. Uh, Kyle, yes. I think you are correct. Democrats uh, are opposing things that are objectively good and are upset about things that should make them happy, and that is an issue. That is a problem. Paul Buck! Nancy Pelosi stated that you can't be acquitted without a trial and that to be a trial, there has to be witnesses and evidence in that trial. Using her logic, if President Trump were to be convicted by the Senate, there could be no conviction since there were no additional evidence or witnesses. I haven't heard any people discussing this since we all anticipate the president will be acquitted today. Your thoughts? Um, Yeah, I mean, Paul, they keep changing what constitutes a trial, what constitutes a fair hearing, what constitutes due process. So, yes, I mean, this is the the issue all along is how can you have voted for how can you have voted for impeachment on the basis of the evidence and witnesses presented and then say the Senate can't rely on that same body of information to come to its conclusion? How can that that's not rational? That's not reasonable. That's not a good faith disagreement. That's dishonest. So I'm with you. Catherine. Writes, hi, Buck. Hi, Catherine. To keep food super fresh in the freezer, invest in a food saver. It vacuums all the air out of the freezer bag provided with the product to keep your meat as fresh as the day it was purchased. Stores food in the freezer for as long as six months. Huh. That sounds kind of cool, actually. Yeah, because it's just me. The, pr- the problem with buying a lot of fresh produce when you're a single guy is that you can't buy for one, really. I mean, you're always... You know, if I buy blueberries, it's like enough blueberries for five people when you go to the store and you get a box or whatever. I mean, it's like, you know, you know, I'm not sitting there eating a whole. It's not that big of a box of blueberries. It's more. It's like you don't need that many blueberries at one sitting. I mean, eat like you portion it out into four or five days. Yeah, but also, do you want to eat blueberries every day for five days? Uh, I mean, sure. Are you a blueberry? Are you like no, a blueberry like connoisseur too? Is this. I don't even like blueberries. But I'm saying you, you could. What is your favorite fruit? Uh, either grapes or apple. What kind of apple? I'm not really picky. See, I'm a Granny Smith guy. I like that sour tartness. I love going apple picking out on Long Island. That's fun. Where's the the best place to do that? Uh, I think it's a place called Harvey's Orchard. 
Is that like North Shore or where is that? It's in the North Shore. North Shore, yeah. Yeah. There's some nice stuff out there. Mm. Yeah, I'm a. For me, it's always the a peach when it is uh, proper ripeness is is I think the greatest fruit. Mm. But if you're talking about just day to day, uh, I I go grapes or banana. I like bananas. I go grapes or Mm. bananas. Yeah, those are those are my favorites. Um, Oh, we went through Catherine. Let's see, we got TJ. Writes, as an Iowan, I am slightly embarrassed for my Democrat counterparts. On behalf of all Iowans, I'd just like to say we're sorry, but please don't take the first in the nation primary caucus status away from us. I promise, first of all, that Republicans will not botch it in 2024, nor did they botch it last night. Furthermore, it's crazy to think that party that party can't even plan one state election, thinks that they can plan the lives of every American citizen. Well, TJ, what you've opened up for me here, well, first of all, thank you for... Speaking, speaking out about this from the great state of Iowa. Does anyone ever get on TV or anyone, any politician ever say, you know, from the like not so bad state of or from the, you know, sort of great state? I guess we have to pretend that all states are great. Look, some states are better than others. We're conservatives. We live in the real world. Now, we can argue about what, what the realities of what states are better than others, but there are some states that, you know, they're just OK. I feel like as somebody who hosts a show that airs probably in every in state almost in the every country. State? No, I know. I'm not, I'm not yeah. telling you which ones I like and don't uh-huh. like. Yeah. I mean, I'm from New York, so I can make fun of New Jersey. Meanwhile, like yeah. half of my friends are from New Jersey, so I can't really, you know. I mean, I'm moving you know. there and I still hate it. Yeah. You know, but like the you don't hate it because you're moving there, so you don't hate it. That's home. It's only uh, home because it's so close yeah. to Manhattan. But see, you're just, it's the same thing. If you're from Texas, you have a you have a special dispensation to make as many jokes about Oklahoma as you want. Everyone knows sure. this. It's not that you actually hate Oklahoma. I remember a Texan once told me they're building the wall on the wrong border because <laughs> they want to build it at the northern. Anyway, um, but uh, you know, if you're a New Yorker, you're allowed to make fun of New Jersey, and if you're New Jersey, you're allowed to make fun of New York. I'm trying to think what the other great state. There was actually a map are. going around somewhere. I don't know if it was an actual poll or something, but it had each state who they hate the most. Oh, really? Yes. That would be amazing. And New we... Jersey hated everyone. Well, that, that is Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. we got to find we got to find that because I'm really curious to see what the there must be some state rivalries that I'm not even particularly, Probably, you know, yeah. not even really, you know, like Nevada and Arizona are like the Sharks and Jets and they've just got lots of beef. You know, I don't the know. Sharks? I don't know. Whichever side you pick. I don't know. OK. I've never seen West Side Story. I might actually go this spring, though, because it opened here in New York City. Oh, did it? Yeah. Well, that'd it's be a, interesting. The Broadway show. I've hmm. never seen the show. I've never seen Grease or West Side Story. Hmm. Like the movies or the... Either. Wow. I, I've never seen either of them, so I might have, might have to check that out. But, And I'm sure like right now, New Hampshire's like, what's up, Vermont? Bring it. Who's got beef with Iowa? That's what I would want to know. There's got to be some state. We it's, can't I think, have beef with Iowa. No, Missouri like Missouri is probably like, what's up, Iowa? Well, they must nice, like nice, fries. Nice caucus you got there. Be a shame if something happens to it. Yeah. I don't know. Andrew. Hey, Buck, you mentioned the debt a few days ago, and I'm sure you know... Most Americans probably think we owe all of our debt to China. The fact is, only $4.12 trillion is held by foreign countries. The, the, the remaining is debt we owe ourselves. I'm not sneezing at $4 trillion, but I think a big misconception is that we owe foreign governments $23 trillion. Just my thoughts for the day. Shields high. Well, a- a- Andrew, though, it has to do with, that's That's true. It is that, that foreign countries only own a portion of our debt. China has the biggest one. I think Japan has a trillion or so. And this is by our debt. What they mean is really treasuries that they've bought U.S. treasuries, uh, which are promises by the U.S. federal government to pay back with interest people that have bought those treasury bonds. Uh, the problem is that when you, you know debt is 
you have to you have to price into debt the rate at which you're going to pay it back. And so if the debt gets too large, eventually, even if the debt is to ourselves, people wonder, well, are, are we actually going to be able to pay this? And uh, then you have the this is the the problem with the rise of interest rates would be that you have to pay so much back to the debt that is owed to stay on time and not have a default. And American default of the debt would be a big deal, uh, very big deal. Um, you end up crowding out other expenditures from the federal government just to pay interest on the debt itself. So it's still a problem. Um, even you know whoever we owe the money to, it still is an issue for the a major issue for the financial system. Zvi, with conditioning aid to Ukraine, with that country working to eliminate its corruption, how can POTUS ignore a corruption trail leading back to the USA? How could POTUS ignore Biden's quid pro quo? Not acknowledging Biden's act would be a double standard. It could be presented as yet another mess from the previous administration that POTUS needs to address. How is it possible this administration did not use this argument? Um, mm, what are we saying? Not because uh, they Zvi because they. Oh well, I, I think that they didn't do a good enough job. I will agree with you on on this. Z. I think you're you're suggesting that the administration didn't do a good enough job explaining to people that it was completely legitimate to ask about Biden because there was there was clear evidence of corruption or there was plenty of reason to believe to investigate for corruption because people don't pay people $80,000 a month for no reason. All right, that that's is and remember folks, federal prosecutors just to take a step back for a second, federal prosecutors wanted to send former Virginia governor Bob McDonald's wife to prison the wife to prison for McDonald uh, accepting gifts from a businessman in Virginia whom he never did a single, and they never even allege, he never did a single official act for him, but he hung out with him and accepted gifts from him, and they wanted to send McDonald to prison and his wife to prison. So when you're a Republican, that's how corruption law is applied. Your wife, can, who has no official duty or role whatsoever, is all of a sudden going to prison for corruption because some rich business guy like gave her a watch or sent her on a vacation. Yeah, if you do some, this is where the quid pro quo always comes in. Yeah, if, if so you give somebody a $50,000 Rolex and then all of a sudden you get a government contract, that's corruption. But it's a lot harder when it's, hey, I really like you and I gave you a really expensive birthday gift, you know, or I gave an expensive birthday gift to your wife when you're the governor of Virginia, but you've never done anything for me of any kind and no one alleges you have. You know, is that well, that, that's corruption. If you're a Republican, then then you go to prison. Your life is ruined. But if you're Joe Biden's son, it's hey, man, I'm just like on the board of this company and like, you know, just rocking out, partying with strippers and, you know, a little bit of drugs here and there. And why not? Whew. So, yeah, they didn't do a good enough job arguing about that. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Maureen writes, hey, Buck and producer Mark, as always, I love you guys. I listen or watch every day and I find myself missing you terribly on the weekends. As a licensed psychotherapist, I can tell you why there's pricing discrepancies for medical billing stuff. It used to be that a medical professional could bill insurance companies and get reimbursed their billed fee. But then managed care, a.k.a. socialized medicine, came along and started cheating practitioners out of their fees. 
And about 10 or 12 years ago, some exceptionally horrible managed care insurance companies started reimbursing practitioners just a mere 25% of their fee. That's insane. So this became a real survival thing for practitioners and made them start billing higher than their normal fee just so they could get closer to getting their actual fee reimbursed to them. So the explanation of benefits patients get in the mail will often show insanely high fees for various services. And while the high numbers freak people out, it's because they don't realize it's a survival ploy just so professionals can get paid a tiny fraction of what is listed on the explanation of benefits in hopes of getting their actual fees reimbursed. No, Maureen, I'm actually familiar with this, and I know... Um, I know people who have told me about receiving bills for pretty standard treatment where their insurance will get billed like $1,000 for it, and then they'll end up paying, um, they'll end up paying, you know, some tiny fraction of that. So they bill for 1000 hoping to get 200 But that just goes to show you, I mean, this is not the way this should work. This is not this, the way this game should happen. It should be price transparency. You should know what something costs. You should know what the bill will be. Anything else is just nonsense. Right, architecture, architecture Professor Mark? Right? You know what I'm talking about. Of course I do. You should get paid for the work that you do. Correct. Hmm. I'm with you. Shane, Buck, love the show. I've been a listener for many years now. I've always found your analysis very accurate and astute. I look forward to each afternoon when your podcast is released to hear your commentary and take on the day's events. Congratulations on the new show on WOR. It is well-deserved, and you will be fabulous. I wanted to get your opinion on school choice. I love the idea and have long been a proponent of this idea, even before it became a popular buzzword. At first glance, it seems like a great idea, but it comes at tremendous cost to the school district. My father served on our school district board for 13 years, and when a parent wants to send their child to a charter school, the school district is responsible for 100% of the cost. In most cases, this is more than $50,000 per year per student, and the state and federal government provide little to no funding to help out. I find this to be absurd. I went to college for far less than this. The parents do not directly see this cost, so they think they can send their child to charter schools for free. What are your thoughts on how to make this a viable program at that price? As at that price, it will drive school districts further into debt. Shields high. Well... Let's uh, let's unpack this together. First of all, Shane, thank you for the kind words. Um, so, why is the charter school so expensive? Is the charter school so expensive per pupil because it's not not getting enough funding to start out with, and is that because the public school is getting a huge amount of funding for administrators and costs that are in excess of what is des- is necessary, especially for a school that is presumably failing? So, I mean, I'd really have to look at the books for any individual, and I don't know if this is the case at in a lot of school districts, or if this is just the case that your your dad on this school board uh, dealt with, but I mean, it's all money coming from the taxpayer. So you know, if you're spending fifteen to twenty thousand dollars per student in a public school, why shouldn't that be able to be? Fun- why shouldn't that be the expense for a charter school? And if that's not the expense, we'd have to figure out why. And and I bet if you dig deep, you'll find out it's because the public school system is full of graft, corruption, and waste. Um, But I have to leave it there for right now, my friends, because this show has been amazing, but it's coming to a close until tomorrow when we unite again. Shields high.